This week on the Notorious Scoundrels podcast. I should have said Darth Maul is trapped in a well. <laughs> <laughs> He'd find a way. He uh, certainly did. Welcome to the Notorious Scoundrels, a podcast focused on tactics and competitive play for Star Wars Legion. Hosted by Kyle Dornboss, Michael Barry, and David Zelenka, with Jay Shalansky, the man behind the glass. Hello and welcome back to the Notorious Scoundrels podcast. I'm Kyle. I'm here with Mike and David. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Doing good. Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm doing fine. Uh, what's on the What's on the menu today? On the menu. So um, the majority of this episode is going to be uh, Brad from Team Relentless talking about terrain. Um, <laughs> which is more exciting than it sounds, I promise. Um but uh, we're also going to talk about uh, that tea kettle that's going off in the background. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love the timing. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, hang on, let me just go turn that off and we'll cut this part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. We, we never cut anything anyway, so, you know, never. staying never, it. Ever. What's that? Lassie, General Grievous is trapped in a well. <laughs> Can you just scale out? I guess. Uh, all right. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So no, I should have uh, said I should have said Darth Maul is trapped in a well. <laughs> <laughs> He'd find a way. He uh, certainly did. Uh, yeah, obviously he did. Um, all right. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so we're going to hear from Brad about terrain. Um, we're going to talk about, we had some new units and stuff revealed last week. So we're going to talk ever so briefly about those. Um, and then, uh, uh, we're going to talk about countering clone standby overwatch shenanigans. Uh, we talked about how to do that previously, but we didn't really talk much about countering it. So shall we? Let's do it. We All shall. Right. Uh, so. Uh, we got uh, f- not one, not two, not three, but four new units um, previewed last week. That would be Inferno Squad, uh, Clan Ren, and uh, the Clone ATRT, which of course is sleeker and newer and better than the <laughs> Salvage Rebel one, and older, and, and right, simultaneously, yeah. right, um, and uh, Stap Riders. So, um, what do you guys think of these? We, we did not get, importantly, we did not get unit cards for um, Ren and Inferno, so we can't talk super much about like what they do, but conceptually, they look awesome. Yeah, they look really cool. I always called the Stap Riders, they're kind of like flying pogo sticks. <laughs> yeah. So now you can have six okay. flying pogo sticks in your CIS army. As long as you're putting uh, bombing run bombs on those pogo sticks. Heck yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm interested in them just because they give a, uh, you know, they give CAS a chance to do something that they haven't really previously been able to do, which is compete on like non-gunline objectives. Um, yeah, no, they have their speeder bike unit, so to speak. Right. I mean, can we talk about the fact that there's 73 points? As opposed, it's a to very one. interesting number. 
Yeah, as, as opposed to like, I don't know, 67 or 117 or, you know, oh, like know, the other weird number. <laughs> Instead of 75 or 70? Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what? I mean, two points, yeah, that's important. Or three points in the other direction? Yeah, I mean, most units are like denominations of five, I guess, but it doesn't mean they have to be, right? Yeah, it's just, I don't know. It bothers me. I mean, well, I think the two points are there for the uh, command control array upgrade they previewed in this article. Because so command the control array there, is two is points. the assumption there you're just like always taking it, therefore they're this much more? I suppose. Um, I mean, I guess they wanted to make sure it wasn't like a penalty not to, inc- or penalty to include something possibly necessary if you wanted to make like a different decision with one unit of your stop riders that it wouldn't break up the the chain so to speak it does give them some flexibility for those that, that don't understand what command and control array is it's the uh, it's a two-point upgrade that goes in the comm slot of a vehicle it's only for vehicles but it says when you use coordinate you can issue an order at range one to two instead of range one so basically, it just gives them an extra bit of room to coordinate between each other. And I think, I think you know, FFG, they've both said in the past that they want people to be able to build units how they want. And um, I, I think they've decided to do 73 and then 2 because they don't want to penalize you for taking something you might feel is necessary to make the unit sing. Um, I don't know. What do, you, what do you all think about that idea? I mean, I think that that's fair. I uh, would have liked to see that like out of the box with Pathfinders, but um. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, uh, right? I mean, it it's nice that there's a little more precision there. Um, I, I actually don't think that two point comms upgrade is looks very good on them, uh, especially because it could easily be link targeting array or long range comms or uplink, all of which I think seem better. Um, for various reasons, but if they're chaining orders to each other, that seems like a no-brainer to put like targeting array on there. Um, you get three free AM tokens if you got a little wolf pack. Maybe give one of them long-range comms so they can run around on the other side of the table, and then order the other two. Um, but yeah, I, I don't feel like range one when you got cohesion um, of a speeder bike-sized mini is very difficult to achieve with three models. I'm sorry, three units. Um, but anyway. Uh, that aside, I'm excited for them because of how they change, potentially change um, separatists, uh, how they approach objectives. Um, ATRTs look look pretty interesting for clones. Anytime you got a surge hit thing on clones, it's it's uh, potentially spicy, right? Yeah, fire support is the is the word or pair of words that we're looking at. When anything that surges hit, you're like, how do I fire support this? And uh, let's see if they, they've also got this uh, long-range rocket launcher, so you can do something fairly safely from the backfield there. It says they got this rocket launcher, the Clone Pilots Merson RPC-2 rocket launcher. So that's an interesting, uh, interesting thing. I don't think any, um, I don't think any unit in the game has a rocket launcher as a base weapon so far. Certainly not one that rides something. <laughs> That rides a chicken. <laughs> yeah, it's 
pretty yeah. badass clone. He can like no handlebars and fire a rocket launcher from the back of a chicken walker at the same time. Yeah, I guess he like stops and like takes his hands off the off the steering or whatever to stabilize the shot. <laughs> I prefer I prefer the no handlebars. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, because oh, yeah, I mean it's like out of the Clone Wars cartoon, right? Something you'd expect yeah. to see. But hey, man, it's fantasy, man. Like we can debate the we can debate fantasy physics all day. Yep, and do so fruitlessly. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, those both look interesting. Um, we'll we'll wait to talk more about them until uh, we can talk more about the tactics and stuff when we have more info. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, and then Ren and Inferno obviously look super interesting. Those models look amazing. Um, I don't know about painting white Mandalorians. That's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> don't paint them white. You don't have to, right? <laughs> yeah, you're not like obligated to paint them white. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, yeah, they're they're coming a long way with poses and faces, and um, you know, now we have a likeness of Tom Cruise that we can put on the table. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be that would be Del Mico uh, for those that haven't seen the card. Um, yeah, it's awesome. I'm excited. Yeah, it's gonna be good. I'll, I'll get like, a little. I'll get a little philosophical here. Like I know that like their armor is like really plain looking, kind of. I, I, I'm almost certain that's to play up the contrast between like, you know, Sabine going her own way versus, you know, Clan Ren that represents you know order and conservative kind of Mandalorian values. And so they wanted to. I think I think the people that designed this chose the scheme to play that up, and I think that's evident. But also, of course, you know, some people were former, you know. Super Commandos, if, if you're familiar with the story at all, um, I mean, I think I think that's why that's why this is like the so-called canon scheme. But I mean, I think I think if Sabine, if your Sabine is you know inspired, or if you've gone your own way, I mean, this is this is a perfect. It's a perfect canvas, right? You can do whatever you please, and um, you know, I think people should pursue that. And I don't, I, I think the canon scheme is kind of, I mean, it looks nice, but it's it's boring. Like, and it's boring on purpose. <laughs> Is what I'm trying to say. It's not a faulty a fault in the design. You know, it's kind of boring on purpose. I wouldn't say it's boring. I would say that it is uh, elegant. Okay. And, uh, austere. Austere. There you go. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. You know, it's basically yellow and white. But like, if you look at the yellow, they're in these awesome. At least the paint job on the site, they're in these awesome, like, flowing patterns and stuff. Um, so yeah, I'd call it yeah. elegant. Yeah. But yeah, from a certain yeah. from a certain point of view. From a, I mean, yeah. if you if you think about it, actually, though, okay, like, this is where stormtroopers being white came from. Fundamentally, like clone troopers are in white armor because they're based on Mandalorians. Oh, yeah. so maybe yeah. I had it backwards, huh? Yeah, I did um, not know that. Yeah, yellow and white—the two hardest colors to paint. Yeah. On one <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I don't want to paint any more of anything in white anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. I'm so done with it. <laughs> uh, I've been doing I've been doing droids um, recently, and uh, I got to say, bone white, so much different. It's like it's like easy mode. Bone white is just yeah, man. It's you can it like for no work, you could just make it look awesome. I'm just I'm painting everything bone white. I don't care. My rebels, I'm painting them all just straight bone white. 
It'd be ghost rebels. Um, I, I didn't even try to do white on my clones. I went with blue and I said, okay, I'm going to do like white accents and just do blue, like, you know, base tone. And then maybe it'll look, you know, senatorial or whatever. That was my excuse. Senatorial. There you go. Yeah. I don't want to paint. I don't want to paint white. So I'm just going to paint blue instead <laughs> because <All right>. coverage. <laughs> Speaking of clones, should we talk about standby countering standby shenanigans? Yeah. Why not? Do people want to counter standby shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a pain in the ass. Because they would like not to lose to clones. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, that's the that's the idea, huh? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's pretty good. Right. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our tactics section. Get ready for advanced tactics. All right, um, so we've talked previously about how to do the clone standby thing. So let's talk about how to counter it, because if you're facing clones and you've never dealt with this before, um, uh, you're going you're gonna to get... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you're going to get smashed, is what's yeah, going to happen to you. It's gonna be, it's going to be unpleasant, because um, it's going to be surprising. And then, uh, yeah. So let's talk about how to counter it. Um, so there's there's a couple the the most important thing I think uh is range and understanding like your engagement distances um if you're facing like a like a properly tuned clone tournament list um you're probably gonna need at least two if not three snipers like just to strip standbys and to pick off clone models um do you guys disagree with that at all no I don't no i I mean is what it is yeah, yeah it's range, range is just a range counters it in, a, in some you know large way and snipers especially because they usually pierce you know and they have the the ability to get through their their thick saves you know um just as far as unit comp is concerned other long-range things that hit hard are helpful range four things um you know like bosk uh, death troopers Things like that, even stuff that you can just chip with at range four, like the um, like the droid sniper from the upgrade pack or um, the DLT twenty, also helpful. Um, both for stripping standbys and just for like chipping away at a front unit outside of range three. But yeah, you like you don't want to you don't want to just charge in there um, and try and engage them at range three because you're going to get shot repeatedly by the same unit. <laughs> And it's going to be like a phase two with Z6 or something like that. And they're going to have a bunch of aims to share and search tokens, and they're going to clap you in the face. Uh, be, be aware. Awesome. Sorry, sorry. go on, Dash. No, you're good. That's all I was going to say. Okay. Be aware. <laughs> be aware that um, there are phase ones that can do it. If they bring the clone captain, they can take a training upgrade. And that training upgrade can be Overwatch. So... Uh, it's not just the phase twos to worry about. It's anything with the training slot you'll have to worry about on the clone side that has a clone trooper keyword. Yeah, so this will eventually include, we presume, uh, full arcs, um, among other things. So, yeah, be aware that Overwatch. Uh, I mean, like, you got to know where all the Overwatch units are. If your opponent has multiple phase twos and they don't all have Overwatch, make sure you ask them, like, which ones have Overwatch and which ones don't, and keep good track of it. Um, 
you know, you got to know where the standby tokens are and which units can make use of them. If they're in like a super tight ball, it's going to be most of them. But um, in practice, that's not always possible. So um, you might be able to like sort of pick off some units that are kind of outside that standby sharing range. Or maybe you got a unit that only has access to like one standby um, and you've got a tanky unit that you can move up to eat it and then you can move in with your other units for the rest of the turn and start, you know, chipping away at that front unit. Jump in if you guys have any. I, I just I just went through this. I played a game against uh, Mike's real over the weekend. He was doing clone standbys. Um, no, so. this is this is good. Um, I'm just thinking like uh, balance wise. You know, you're both taking a calculated risk. Uh, on the one hand, your opponent is saying, "I'm going to spend an action here to stand by, and I'm going to hope that you are forced, but by the circumstances of the game to." suffer an additional attack from my standby action elsewhere on the board and then you're kind of saying okay well if i do have to suffer this attack then i have to send up a unit you know that can do this and not you know suffer too badly from it you know not take too much damage and so i was thinking earlier as i was you know going through this i was like man this is really unfair this is really tilted toward the clone player but really, the clone player is is taking risk. He just is not taking it as, you know, he, he's putting a question to you and it's up to you to play around it. And of course, you can just, you know, ignore it and fall on his sword. And then it's sort of like, well, you deserved what you got because you didn't respect the board or you didn't read the board. Um, anyway, uh, in terms of like countering this stuff and eating the attack, right? Remember that you can um, send units up and you can try to put yourself in positions where um, your opponent uh, can only see with a few of the miniatures in the unit that's going to going to utilize the standby token, and then um, you have to put your your standbying opponent in a in a weird position. Either he uses the standby and makes a, a crappy attack, or the Overwatch unit is going to get attacked after he doesn't spend it, and then they're going to suffer casualties, and then his Overwatch standbys get weaker as those um, Overwatch units suffer casualties. And so I think this is, again, you know, snipers are like a triple whammy here. Not only do they outrange and um, not only do they outrange and pierce the save, uh, they also are decaying the effectiveness as models get removed from that P2 unit or whatever unit is the, the standby uh, unit that's forward to, you know, try to influence you. So yeah, I really do think taking snipers, taking any kind of like you know DLT twenty A, and you're if you're a rebel player, and, and of course I'm a rebel player, uh, the DLT twenty A looks like uh, a very strong choice uh, if you are playing that style. Um, this sort of tech is very, very, very good against tauntauns. Tauntauns cannot stand at eighteen inches to charge, and they also cannot like sort of you know, go in there because standby beats agile. It beats relentless. So uh, the Overwatch clone list may be very, very difficult for you to deal with as a Tauntaun player. Yeah, and another important note there too is if you do have aggressive units that you need to get in there, um, you know, like your opponent will have to spend the turn accumulating standbys. So winning priority if you do need to get in there is super important. Um, 
you know, before they start building up standbys, because over the course of the turn, you know, you got three, four standbys you might have to deal with. Like the longer you wait, the harder it's going to get to get in there. Um, and that doesn't mean you should just like charge in uh, recklessly or anything, but, um, you know, just know, like, uh, we've talked in the past about ordering your pips to make sure that you're winning priority in the stage of the game when you need to just make sure you're conscious of that, um, when you're playing your command cards over the course of the game so that, um, you know, on those later turns when you're going to need to get in there, you can do that with lower pip cards. And also try not to ever leave a unit at range three of a Overwatch standby. Try never to leave it there because every time that unit standbys is going to shoot that unit and just continue to shoot it until it dies yep. as long as it has standbys to, to feed it. Yeah, now if you're if you've been chipping that unit and it's like a weakened unit, um, that that front standby unit, uh, then that might be less of an issue, uh, right? And and there's gonna be like you have to kind of probe the clone line a little bit. Like there's gonna be a unit that's that's slightly out front of the others, just mathematically. Um, so uh, you know you want to figure out which one that is and then start chipping at it with your longer range stuff. Um, and kind of force your opponent to like cycle a different unit forward if you can. And it's it's just the you know, it's just the process of chipping and identifying where those standbys are and which units are not in a position to use them and not getting clapped by a free standby shot. Yeah, I, I predict that kill the phase two with Overwatch is gonna be the entry point against most clone lists going forward. Yep. And you, you use whatever tools you have to accomplish that, and hopefully they don't have range three or less. Yeah, and you know, clones are expensive, right? Like if you're dealing with a with a clone list that's designed to kind of take advantage of standby sharing in Overwatch, they're probably only going to have like three to four trooper units with heavy weapon upgrades. Um, so if you can take out even one of those, uh, that's a that's a pretty big deal. Um, you know, the whole point of like standby sharing is essentially to funnel your offense through just a few, um, like high powered units. And if you can deny them the opportunity to do that, that's going to be that's going to be important. Yeah, the whole thing is about minimizing risk to the clone player, right? Because right. he doesn't have to put his stuff forward into the line of fire; he can just funnel it through that that single unit. Yep. Like we talked about, sorry, we talked about rebels and and imperial methods, right? Um, should we talk about like what if you're another clone player? Like an um, trooper is going to be the thing. Well, yeah, I mean, we're not in a world yet where the, where our troopers are available. So why don't we talk at least for now about uh, an arcless situation? Oh yeah, uh, that's fair. I mean, you guys are the clone players. How do you how do you approach that? Like in a mirror. Uh, I mean, you just kind of have to accept that. Eventually, you're gonna have to. So the way that you need to set it up is that you need to be able to engineer a turn in which you can aggressively move forward and force them to like take actions that aren't standbys. You know, um, is really the best way to to handle that situation. And that goes for any army, frankly. Like if you're able to aggress as like the first action of the turn in order to like shut the standby chain down. Um, you should likely do it. Uh, it unless you can wait until next turn to do whatever you're trying to do, you know. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, if especially if, if you don't have guns that are range four, which clones basically don't. Um, I mean, I, I guess you've got DC 15s, but like popping a DC 15 shot off at, uh, you know, phase two of the stand that trying to kill like one or two dudes on a phase two squad is not great. Yeah. I mean, so. Yeah, I mean, I think you just have to be aggressive and you have to be aggressive early, you know, and it kind of goes against a lot of what we've learned generally in Legion is to like wait until the end of the turn to be aggressive when your opponent can't do anything about it, right? Um, but specifically when you're dealing with all the standby sh- sharing shenanigans, the earlier you make your move, the less they're going to be able to lock you down. Yeah, it's kind of about creating a tempo, right? Because the standby sharing is inherently reactive and in that it gets, you know, the more those build up, the harder it gets to get in there over the course of the turn. So if you can, like, you know, force the engagement early in the turn and make them respond to you, um, then then you're, you're going to be uh, doing better. All right, you guys got anything else on, uh, on countering Overwatch standby sharing with clones? Or rather, against clones. Uh, d- don't get schooled by it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is just, like you got to know what the objective is, right? And then just you got to know where those standbys are and which units can use them, and just don't give away free attacks. Right. I mean, the the, the I think the best you know use of it, and one of the worst situations I encountered was a. Uh, when you had a, a a phase one, like just a naked phase one, right? So they're like behind a piece of line of sight blocking terrain, and they've got their one guy that can see like the back foot of the phase two unit that they're trying to share the standby to. And so it's like you cannot pick that off because it's just not exposed at all to what you have. And um, you just have to then, like you said, like we said before, you just have to figure out how you're going to play around it or play with it, you know, either eat it or just do something else and you can also like stall yourself and say okay fine you know stand by all you like this objective we're on may not be scored until later you know key positions is a good one for this um yeah breakthrough is a good one for this i mean if, if they're taking standby actions and never actually getting to use the tokens um they're they're wasting actions to some degree yeah they're just wasting mm-hmm. time Yep. Yeah. Which as is long bad as you're not also wasting actions at the same time. Well, that's yeah. the catch, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, right. But but yeah, I mean that that's a kind of a big a big deal about it, you know. If if they're wasting actions and not actually doing anything, you know, take them take them to town. You're good to yep. go. Right. Like even if you're taking suboptimal like range four shots with two or three dice weapons. You know, if all they're doing is doing aim standby and you're doing aim range four chip shot, like you're going to eventually be doing more damage than they are because they're doing zero if you're not letting them spend those standbys. Right. They're sitting there waiting for you to fall on their standby and you're potentially removing minis. So that's a win for you. Yep. Um, I mean, frankly, you know, Legion gunline play has always been about incremental advantages. You know, Mm -hmm. that hasn't changed. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of just a more amplified version of that. 
right? Like ultimately gun line play has always been about identifying out of position units, focusing those units down and trying to create a snowball via attrition. Um, and it's basically the same. It's just, you know, turned up to 11 a little bit. All right. Um, well, should we move on to our relentless Rangers segment? Sure. All right. Welcome back to the Relentless Rangers. I am here again with Brad and Nima from Team Relentless. Guys, thank you for joining me today. We are going to talk about um, deployments and terrain placement um, and hopefully maybe mix in some vital assets talk. Uh, first off, I know um, things are a little weird lately. How you guys doing? You guys holding up okay? Just yeah, we're up. doing all right. <laughs> Over yeah. here in California, we're, we're surviving. Just living under quarantine, no big deal over here in the Midwest. So, um, I still am going to work every day, so it's not too much of a change for me. Gotcha. But that means there's probably a ton of time to plan out new table configurations. I would guess. I wish yeah. there was more than there is <laughs> for me. Unbelievable, Brad. You're <laughs> me right now. Yeah, I found more time before all this happened, which is weird. Mm. Well. Let's let's talk about what it would be like if you did have the time. All right. Oh. <laughs> so let's talk about deployments. Um, Brad, you wrote a really awesome article for the Fifth Trooper blog. Um, you know that I guess where where we can start today is you had a very sweet map that kind of outlined different deployment zones and how they kind of all figured in with each other. Um, so if you guys could, I guess, start there um, when we're talking about building terrain and kind of, I guess we can just let the let it kind of flow from there. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So uh, my beautiful artistic map that I really enjoyed and I'm glad is there and is now going to be not completely irrelevant thanks to the arrival of vital assets, but I'm certainly going to have to go back and adjust it. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe because, a few updates to it. Yeah. When you throw in some new deployment zones, it tends to change the math a little bit. Um, but yeah, the basic concept is when you're laying out a table. Um, in that article, what I started with specifically is you want to make sure you have a theme in mind. Um, you know, hey, I want this table to be the forest moon of Endor. Or I want this table to be, you know, the, you know, uh, Dune Sea on Tatooine. Or I want to go crazy and make Camino. You know, you have this idea in your head of what kind of Star Wars planet you want to bring to life on the table. And that helps you choose, you know, hey, am I going to be using wreckage terrain? Am I going to be using buildings? Am I going to be using rocks, trees? Is there going to be water? Um, all these things you want to consider and it allows you to kind of build your pool of stuff you're going to build with first. Um, and then the next part, which we're talking about today specifically, is terrain balance, specifically in regards to deployment zones. So when you finally assemble your you know, whole mass of terrain and you're ready to build your table and you look down at the table and you see a big old empty white six foot by three foot space in front of you. Do you normally play on a white mat? Just just roll with it. I'm looking at a white like the my okay. right. <laughs> my uh beautiful <laughs> diagram is on a white background. 
and I'm looking okay. at it right now as I'm talking. So just roll with this. We'll get there. Okay. Um, you need to think about the deployment zones because you can lay out this awesome table with all of this terrain everywhere and then go to play a game on it after and realize you did not leave anywhere for your tank to deploy. Or one side is extremely more defensible than the other. Or, you know, there's just line of sight blocking terrain everywhere and no one can see each other outside of range one. Like all this kind of stuff just happens and you need to think about, okay, where are my players going to put their units down on the table? How are these units going to move around the terrain? And on certain objectives, where are they going to be fighting? Um, specifically, the center of the board is a massive piece that you need to think about. Um, the areas that are just between the center of the board and the short edge of the board, specifically the other spots where the intercept the transmission circles go, are other hot spots where a lot of combat tends to happen in games. Um, and that's on all deployments. And then you also need to think about, okay, you know, on major offensive, they get to deploy up to that corner, you know, on that intercept point. So they can deploy right on top of that, where on advanced positions, they can't. So they're going to be way back, but going along the, the uh, edges of the board on their corner. Battle lines is, you know, the long edges of the board. Long march is the short edges of the board. And each one of those different deployment zones is going to create a different style of game and is going to interact with your terrain differently. Right, yeah. And coming at that from a to perspective you really have to keep that sort of thing in mind as you're you're laying out the boards um you want to give your players interesting um interesting places for the fights to happen over like as as the to is laying out the board they have to really they have to see how the game is going to unfold right and uh, in a lot of the ways that brad was describing um it vital assets really shakes up a lot of this so we're we're still kind of digesting what this does to the game, um, uh, and we're we're focusing more on uh, deployment in this in this episode. So, um, uh, you want to keep the deployment zones in mind. Uh, leave room for different types of units to to deploy, um, while maintaining access to various areas of the board and sort of. Um, it, establishing where the the fight zones are going to be. So, for example, if you have two two large pieces of line of sight blocking terrain opposed to each other with a a big opening in between them, that's probably where a firefight is going to happen. Um, so, just something to keep in mind as a as a TO when you're um, laying out various types of boards. So, um, you you both have mentioned um, base sizes and kind of how that plays into starting to build out the board specifically with the deployment zones in mind. Um, Nima, could you kind of give us a little bit more of an idea as like a TO, like what sort of thought goes into, you know, how far apart do the terrain pieces need to be um, and what sort of things are, is going through your mind when you're setting up the tables? Yeah. Um, so we we know that the the largest um, the the largest base that we have in the game now is very slightly less than a range one uh, uh, ruler. Uh, so you want to maintain at least a range one band between the 
the large buildings um, in some areas of the board. It, this doesn't have to be a, a totally homogenous kind of distribution um, of buildings on the table. Um, so you can kind of have a gradient of, of spacing. Um, but it's, it's especially important in the deployment zones because you, you have to leave routes for, for tanks and, uh, well, it's really just tanks, isn't it? <laughs> uh, for, for tanks to leave their deployment zone. So, um, it, it's at least something to be conscious of that the, the buildings are at least range one apart. Um, in areas where you want the the tank to be able to move. Um, I think one good example of this is, and we were talking about this before, like in our sort of warm up before the, the cast, uh, uh, Brad made a really nice table that's on TTS now that's worth checking out. It, uh, uh, the Jetta City Center, I think it's called. Um, and that one has, uh, I think a, a lot of what I'm talking about here is that it has dense areas of the board and then larger areas um, or more or more open areas where a tank can move through. There's this long diagonal down the middle of the board um, and then a couple longer alleys around the sides. So it has options to move. Um, but much like real life, a tank can't necessarily go everywhere that it wants to go because it's a, a large um, a large vehicle. Um, and sort of counter to that, the troopers have have room to maneuver inside the dense areas. So that that kind of thing, it's um, it's an interesting dynamic to play with, I think. Um, and so, you know, that's that's interesting. They kind of like you know we've got the one range ruler kind of range band. Um, you know, on Legion tur- tournament circuit, you've got you've got like a chart full of sparse uh uh sparse boards versus dense boards um and kind of how much different types of terrain are incorporated into them um you know does that so would you say that like in you know that six inch rule generally um is centered around like area terrain as well like is that in that pool of of things that need to be that far apart or is like forest kind of fair game um, I would generally consider the the line of sight blocking stuff to be in in that category, um, or anything that that a tank can't move over, right? Because if you have two things that are within six inches six inches of each other, but the tank can move over it anyway, it, it really doesn't matter, right? Because um, it's not creating an area that's that's blocking movement of the of the vehicle. Um, and actually, I'm glad you brought up that that diagram. I think that's something that's worth looking at. Um, a few of us have put a really considerable amount of effort into this uh, Legion tournament circuit uh, resource. Uh, there's a page that talks specifically about terrain and guidelines for TOs. So from a slightly stepped back uh, perspective um, about how to lay out tables for a whole tournament, we have this diagram that shows what are the extremes of what a table could look like. Um, you always want at least 25% coverage, but within that, you can play around with the distribution of line of sight blocking, area train, and scatter train, um, and so that that's another way to to play with. Um, how does a player with a large base size respond to the to the the table that they're playing on? You know that you can have a a distribution of tables throughout the whole tournament, 
where some of them are a little more open, the tank will have more maneuverability, and some of them are a little bit more blocked as far as line of sight and movement. Um, so that's another thing that the, the TO really has to keep in mind, that the tables are not all exactly the same, and you have you have this range that you can play with. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that a lot of the tables aren't the same. Um, Brad, you were kind of chatting before in regards to um, kind of uncertainty in player choice when they walk up to a table um, and how that kind of factors into how you build your boards. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, this kind of does lean into specifically, I mean, we're talking table design for competitive tournaments, stuff like that. This leans into kind of Nima's world a little bit too with the TOing. When you design a table for a tournament, like let's say Adepticon, for example, right? Um, you're going to have at least probably four to eight games played on that table over the course of the day. And something I try to strive to do as a map designer, or when I'm specifically looking at laying out a table in a tournament, is I try to make the map not easily solvable. What I mean by that is when you walk up to a table, you should not be able to look at the table for like less than five minutes and immediately understand everything about that table. When I talk about understanding a table, as a competitive player, you walk up to a table, you see there's a big old wall along one side, you know, one side has more high ground stuff like that. You go, oh, this side is immediately stronger. And you know that like both players walk up, they look at that, they look at each other and they know the whoever gets blue is taking that one side of the table because it's just clearly better. You don't want to do that. You want to avoid that as much as possible. You want to make it very interesting for players and to have them not know excuse me while R2 interrupts our conversation. Um, <laughs> you want them to not know what side is better necessarily. Like they'll make one where they might have specific pieces of terrain that are laid out in a way that say, hey, this is better for my list. Or, sorry, R2 is being a nuisance. Yeah, he's really <laughs> <accurate for> that. <laughs> I just unplugged him so he won't be bothering us the rest of the time. But oh, uh, <laughs> I hate to interrupt you. But you've gotta you've gotta give us an explanation for what you mean by having to unplug him. So I have you know those little yeah, complete tangent here, but you know those little um like droids that you could buy that you can control from your phone. It's kinda like an R C droid or whatever. The sphere. Um, they, had, okay. they had like a, a BB eight, they had an R two D two. Yeah. I have the R two D two one of those. And he sits on my desk and if he, there's a setting that you can set for them where they will just react to things that happen around them if you leave them plugged in <laughs> to a power source. So when, when he doesn't like what you're saying about terrain, he, he speaks up? And... Yeah, oh, you should hear what he does during uh, when I Twitch stream games. Like, if, if he doesn't like a play, he, he starts getting really ornery about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's fun. Um, so he'll just react to random stuff. He scares the crap out of my dogs. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he'll, he'll be sitting quietly for the rest of the time. But jumping back in, as a player, you don't want to walk up to a table and understand what's going on. You want to know that, hey, this one tower or this one hill is drawing me towards this side because this is better for my list. Or let's say you're playing Darth Vader and you're like, there's this nice LOS blocker on this one side that I might be able to hide behind. But at the same time, there's more overall heavy cover train on the other side so i don't know which one i want to pick some of the ways i lean into this is specifically the biggest trick is designing on an angle 
And what I mean by that is you design in such a way that you take the different, if you, let's say you put the major, major offensive deployment zone down on the table, you have the deployment zones in those two specific corners of the table. If you were to draw a line from one corner of one deployment zone on the far edge of the table to the other, like you can see in the diagram that's on the fifth trooper in that article, that's the axis you want to design your map on. And that means, for example, when I lay out a cityscape, the first thing I do is kind of draw that line. And then if I have a whole bunch of buildings that have square bases, I lay them out on that diagonal first. I always place my LOS blockers first because they're going to be the pieces that are going to be set in stone first, specifically because of that six inch minimum rule that we now have to consider with the Sabre and the AAT in the game. I personally even bump it up to eight inches because you want to leave players leeway in order to move and move around on the table without having to be extremely precise about their movements and getting blocked by pieces of terrain. So you want to make sure you have enough space for those big vehicles to move around through at least one or two main pathways. And then you start filling in with some area terrain. Area terrain doesn't necessarily block those the movement of those vehicles. So those can kind of fill in and be a little closer. And then I bring scatter in afterwards. And you're looking for, uh, this is going to be another vague term, but asymmetrical symmetry. <laughs> um, okay. No, it makes total sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically what you want, in like a lot of games, like certain other games, one that comes to mind that's an old throwback for me is Supreme Commander on the PC. Another really popular one that most people are going to understand that isn't that is StarCraft, um, where you have symmetrical maps. Go. Yeah, you can yeah. Uh, come to that. With StarCraft specifically, you have symmetrical maps where it's the exact same on both sides. And that's more about player skill and how good they are at the game showcasing because it's there's no advantage to either side. In Legion specifically, you want to have each side be different because it's because blue player exists, right? Because we have the opportunity when bidding and building lists, because we have these battle cards that we want to lean into and use in a particular way, the whole game is designed around asymmetry and having a different game every time you play. And the only way to lean into like, hey, why is it more significant to choose one board edge over another is to have that asymmetry in there. At the same time, you don't want to go too far and end up with a case where a map is easily solvable because one side is much stronger than the other. So you create subtle differences. Um, you know, if I put a large tower on one side of a board, on the opposite side of the board, I might put, you know, a little more area terrain. And then the side with the large tower maybe gets some like more crates and scatter. And then you get smaller LOS blockers on the other side. Another example for an Invader League map, for anyone who's booting up TTS and looking at maps right now, what we're talking, the Ryloth map for the last Invader League season was a specific thought experiment I did where I wanted to see if I could create a completely asymmetrical map, not in just, a you know, hardcore, hey, they're not the exact same, but completely different environments on each half of the table. One was a city and one was the outskirts of said city and they were divided by a wall. And what you try to do is you just make it so in that map in particular, the city side had large towers, multiple levels of terrain, big LOS blockers, 
and it had like a little bit of scatter on there, but there wasn't really any area terrain or much to speak of. And you were either basically completely out of LOS behind a tower or you were more exposed. Where on the other side, on the outskirts, I had forests, I had smaller towers, I had like a big old crashed LAAT gunship that was built into the ground. And on that side, yes, you're more visible, there's not as much to hide behind and get out of LOS, but you have a lot more cover in general because of how the rules around area terrain work. Where if you get cover when you're in it, you get cover when you're getting shot through it, so you just had more access to cover that you could move through. And so it created this kind of interesting dynamic where each side, you know, different lists went to different sides based on what they wanted. Lists with large vehicles went more towards the outskirts so they had room to maneuver and get shots they wanted. Where lists with like, a you know, Darth Vader or lists that really wanted to trench down and hold up tended to move more towards the city side so they could use that elevation to get that heavy cover and make their opponent come to them. Um, and that's what you want to encourage in table setup. And I think you, if you're doing your job right, you're you're challenging the players to to read the board and respond to it in in turn zero of every game. Um, I think I want to clarify one thing that you mentioned um, just in passing that it a game like StarCraft is challenging the skill of the players. I would say it's challenge the Legion relative to that is challenging a different skill set um, rather than just how do you grasp the mechanics of the game. Um, how do you grasp the mechanics of the game in addition to um, sort of uh, reading the board and getting those mechanics to work within the scope of the board? Um, and that's that's a really difficult skill. Um, I think you guys uh, um, on the uh, um, the Notorious Scoundrels podcast, you've you've you guys talk about turn zero a lot and how it's probably the the most important skill in the game. Um, and yeah, I think reading the board is a, a big part of that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I think, you know, when we talk about turn zero and how it relates to, you know, what we're talking about, um, you know, just the lists players bring, you know, in, in, in a game like StarCraft, like you have, you're either, you know, the choices are very, um, I don't know, I limited you don't have a ton of different choices whereas you know in this game you could be bringing rebels but you know the difference between bringing rebels with tauntauns or rebels with air speeders or rebels with you know mandalorians as we've seen recently um (laughs) like that changes your calculus there and i think that um you know depending on the terrain that you know is decided to kind of go near those deployment zones um that you know there's skills that go into it that um i guess are beyond just the the mechanics of the game yeah yeah absolutely and i didn't mean to discredit that at all um (laughs) (laughs) jeez brad how dare you it's it's, no it's 100 two different skills right yeah um and this is something i actually had an opportunity um to talk with alex davy about at LVO. Who's um, that? Uh, Alex Davey, for all those who don't know, made the game uh, along Ooh. with Luke Eddy over at FFG. So he was visiting. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I wonder if we can get him on for an interview sometime. Maybe. Who knows? Um, <laughs> it's like maybe you guys haven't already done so at some point. 
link in the description here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's he's. I had an opportunity to pull him aside. I got to bug his ear for like twenty minutes. It was great. Um, where I was judging the team tournament, and he was visiting the hall, and we just got to talk about terrain. And I had some questions about what they had in mind for the game and how terrain would interact with the game while they were designing it. And what he told me kind of reinforced some thoughts I already had, but clarified it in a way that I hadn't thought about before. Um, You know, I mentioned, obviously, Legion has battle decks. Legion has dice. Legion has uncertainty and variance in it. And part of what makes Legion fun and engaging is how and why we're playing Legion instead of like playing, you know, StarCraft is how you can adapt to that uncertainty as you're playing the game and as you're moving into every decision you make. Um, because every decision does have matter. It does matter. And the results of what happens as a chord with the variance is also huge. Um, the battle deck system is designed to give you a different game of Legion that you have to adapt to pretty much every time you play. And Alex said that he looked at terrain in the same way. So when you show up to a table at a tournament, you shouldn't know what you're going to get. You could be fighting in the middle of a desert. You could be fighting in the middle of a city. You could be in a forest. You could be in a swamp. And whatever list you brought, you as the commander of that army should be ready and willing to try to adapt to the environment you're placed in and try to win in that environment. So if you bring a, a list that has two tanks, you should be skilled enough with those tanks to overcome any adversity you might see in your environment that you're coming up to. Um, you know, you're probably going to be really awesome on open maps, you know, maps that aren't really as dense, grasslands, deserts, stuff like that, your swamps even, you're going to do really good in, but you might struggle more in urban environments and you need to be willing to adapt to that and work with that and use the battle cards to your advantage as much as you can using your votes to try to force a favorable scenario, but be able to fight through that adversity. And that kind of stuck with me, especially, um, this might be controversial for some people, but we were talking about a specific table at LVO. And we were talking because I had some questions on these massive bases that were about to come out with the Sabre and the AAT. And I asked him, is it okay if the battle cards end up like, let's say, Long March and Breakthrough and one player has an AAT, but it's impossible for the AAT to actually cross the board and break through to the other side? Is that okay? And his answer was yes. Now, there was a caveat. Yeah, there was controversial. There was a caveat to it, which is if you notice that that might be a potential problem on the table, it's probably something you might want to adjust to make it possible. And that's something that I try to build into my maps as well. I like to leave at least, you know, one or two ways for like a large vehicle to cross the board on Breakthrough on like mm-hmm. both long march and battle lines that's just something that i kind of build into how i build a map and like you know just so it allows for more opportunities to play but alex said it's okay if you miss it and you're in the middle of a tournament and you notice on round three that this aat can't break through 
that's okay because it what it does is then forces the commander of that AAT to recognize that, know that he's not going to be a scoring unit, and then he's going to utilize that AAT in a different way, either blocking a path so his opponent can't come through that way to try to break through, or just turning into a giant death machine and focusing on killing as many things as possible and playing basically goalie for his own defensive zone instead of actually trying to attack and break through. And so you're still playable. As long as every unit is playable on a board, not every unit needs to be good on a board. Can you make some terrain that makes Chewie good? I mean, Chewie's better than Han, so... (laughs) (laughs) That didn't have the exact desired effect, but... So <laughs> I would say yes, you uh, can. Yes, yeah. you can one hundred percent can. And Chewie's good now. Don't don't get me wrong. Don't no one go hate. If you want to hate, go at Mike. I think Chewie's fine. <laughs> I, think, I think he's fine. Chewie's yeah. all right. Uh, so um, I, I find that that conversation interesting. Um, you know, I I think I agree with it for the most part. Um, so I guess my follow up question to you guys is so. We're talking about deployments and varied terrain types and stuff like that. And and you mentioned kind of open tables and more dense tables. And Nima, you you know, you've got your kind of your grid with your dense and your sparse terrain layouts, you know. Um, so let's say that we go to a tournament. It's got 10 tables at it. It's like a small RPQ. You know, how many tables would you say should be kind of like standard, you know, kind of what, what we have charts there for and, and how many should be like outside those bounds to kind of challenge players to make creative decisions. Yeah. Um, so the probably real answer, which is less interesting than what you're hoping for is what terrain did people give me? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's that's that's really the most realistic answer. Um let's but, let's think about it. Let's assume right. that you have totally. any terrain you can pick. <laughs> um I I think what what I would try to aim for is a relatively equal um sort of gradient of tables so like it and ideally you're you're not like um leaning too hard on one side or the other as far as open versus dense um because i i prefer that um uh players shouldn't be coming in with um sort of prior knowledge of what all the tables are going to look like um or the, that that they can kind of game the table, in in a sense, like build build a list, knowing that tables are going to look a certain way. Um, not that players should be totally um, blindsided by the tables, um, but that they they shouldn't be able to go in knowing oh all the tables are going to be dense, um, or like seventy percent of them are going to be dense, and so I can kind of tailor my list towards that. I I would prefer that it's a more even distribution across that that gradient yeah personally if i was gonna do it um my initial thought was three open tables 
three dense tables and probably four middling tables. Um, just so you get that gradient. Yeah, one guy is going to get yep. unlucky because he brought Darth Vader and he's going to play on three open tables that day. It happens. Um, you need to be able to adapt to your environment, unfortunately, um, in the game. And that's going to be a minor case that'll happen. Um, and hopefully that player sees it as more of a challenge of trying to win in that way. Now, when we say open versus dense, that the literal difference is on the Legion Tournament circuit website with those kind of graphs that Nima put out, where it's it's really not that big of a difference, but it's enough that there's a noticeable like there's a there is a noticeable difference when you play and it feels different, but it doesn't mean like there is no terrain on this board and this board has so much you can't even move. Yeah, um, totally. It's you're not going to ever really see, you shouldn't really see a table that ever has more than 33, 33% of the play surface covered by terrain and less than 25% of the surface covered by terrain. Maybe 40, depending on what the kind of terrain is. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a lot of area terrain on that table, for example, because that they can still move through that and interact with it. But you're never going to see a table that's 50% terrain. Like, that table should get thrown out of a tournament. I'll just make yeah. that ultimatum right now. <laughs> Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. 50% is a lot. Like, it is so much. Um, so you want that kind of different variance there. Um, and that just is going to ensure that your players are going to have different experiences they're playing. And again, as you said, Mike, make force them to make some of those more creative decisions. Cool. Um, so is there anything you guys want to kind of add to the deployment terrain placement conversation uh um, do we want to talk about the grid yeah yeah let's talk about I the grid i guess we kind of yeah, we, we talked about it a little it. bit with the map but i guess yeah. we didn't we didn't dive like hard into it we didn't really um, yeah, so go ahead yeah so as far as the grid goes um this again uh and was in your uh fifth trooper article brad yes um, so that's where you can go to find it. Um, what was the name of that article again? It is... I just had it up here. It is called... Oh, it's on the second page now because apparently you guys write a lot of articles. Um, <laughs> it is, I believe, called Designing Terrain Layouts because someone was uninspired with a title uh, <laughs> but yeah it's uh it's it was written on the 7th of february um maybe like someone will be kind enough to throw a link in the description if you all want to check that out um i highly recommend look, looking at that graphic but specifically with the grid not even necessarily the deployments specifically that are on that grid piece you'll find it about halfway through the article if you scroll down but one awesome thing about legion the entire board, so six feet by three feet, right? Range one is six inches. The entire board can be broken down into six inch by six inch squares. And all of the deployments and all of the objectives fall somewhere on that grid, for the most part, if they're in a static position. Um, you know, excluding like evaporators and stuff. But even those get placed within like areas outside of certain things. So. You can see it on TTS too. I highly encourage anyone who's going to like build a map 
and really think about this. Go on TTS if you have it. Load up a blank map, and then there's a way to turn on a grid in your settings. I don't know remember exactly how to do it here. If like PM me on Discord or something if you want like exact instructions on how to do it, um, and I'll send it to you. But if you just take a blank map, pull that grid up where it's a six inch by six inch square grid across the entire thing. It is beautiful for designing a map because it gives you all you need to work with and it gives you a whole thing to and you'll see how it lays out with all the different deployment zones and a bunch of different objectives and stuff and even with the diagonals i was mentioning earlier um, it's a super helpful tool and i've even considered trying to create some kind of projector in real life for like my own home games and stuff where if i want to just throw a table together i can just like flip a switch and it projects this grid onto the table and i can build using that it's kind of a crutch in that you, way you know you can just like pick the train up and put it places right I, I i know but it hurts my soul if i do that i spend way too much time on this man i spend way too much time come on you know this. I, it's fine no i mean this tool is great you know um <clears throat> so yeah um i mean you talked about all the deployments and the and the grids and stuff on it um and these are so these diagonal lines that are on this grid are the uh, lines you were talking about before with kind of building the table around them, right? Yeah. So that specifically the long diagonal from the blue deployment corner to the red deployment corner, that's the angle that I design everything on initially. And like that's if I have a main, like let's say there's a main street that I want running down the middle of the map, I'll typically put it on that diagonal. Um, at least to start, and then it might like shift left or right as I put the table together. But that's kind of where you want it to start, and that's the main axis. That's the main axis of combat, I guess. Both of those are those are the main ways your players are going to attack each other, really, from a lot of different deployment zones along those diagonals. No game of Legion is really played. Even Long March isn't necessarily even played like directly at each other, um, especially on a table that is designed diagonally. Um, because then you have to think about like all these different angles that you don't have to think about when it's just lined up square on a board. Um, so I highly recommend the first step is to have this up there, just design on an angle. It'll immediately make your map maps look better. Like you'll, if you do it on an angle as opposed to straight, you'll be like, step away from it. And you'll be like, huh, that looks pretty good. Even comparatively, if it's the same table and you just like move some stuff off the corners in order to turn it, it'll look better. I don't know why, but it does. Um, and then it just feels better when you play on it too. Okay, sweet. Um, so Nima, do you use this, this tool at all? Uh, not, not specifically. I do like most of these ideas are just kind of ingrained in my head. So I'm intuitively doing, uh, what Brad's talking about here. Um, Do you hear that, Brad? He doesn't need a projector. <laughs> He's got one in his brain. You got to step up your game, Brad. It's because he one learned from me, and two, <laughs> um, yes, it's that. And he also just—I mean, Nima's great at the game. He's played long enough. I'd say most of competitive players, if they were to throw something together, would use a lot of these principles um, because it's something that we just kind of know from playing, like how Legion works you know, hey, this might be make this, putting this terrain in this way or like putting two big LOS blockers near the middle 
um, or making sure that there isn't a giant piece of LOS blocking terrain in the middle of the center intercept circle. Um, these are, or, you know, not putting the middle box on top of a height two building. <laughs> these are all things that we just know from playing lots of games of Legion, especially as we were all getting used to how the game worked and how terrain should work in the beginning um, that a lot of people just pick up and run with. And there's all these unwritten rules um, that all of us have been using. And that's what these principles are based on are a lot of those kind of unwritten rules that I've discovered. So I'm not surprised at all that Nima can just do half of this without thinking about it. And I came Nima, into Legion God. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I came into Legion from Infinity. Um, and one thing that I learned from that game as well, we, we have a lot of really strong players around here um, and a lot of uh, TOs. That, actually, the guy that, that runs the LVO events for Infinity is from around here as well. So I, I learned a lot of these these lessons from from those guys, and it, it's I thought it was really interesting that the the same ideas apply to to Legion. That a lot of these are just kind of pervasive. They any game that you play, just designing on an axis um, that that is not parallel to the edges of the board just immediately changes the the dynamic uh, of the game. Um, uh, and I think part of that is that when when there's this internal axis that that varies, uh, it it's not immediately recognizable. Like I think Brad was alluding to this earlier, that the the table is not immediately digestible. Um, there are these odd axes of of uh, lines of sight and movement that that maybe you didn't see initially. Um, that maybe you can catch your opponent off guard if you saw. It um, at the beginning and you planned your turn zero, zero around it. Um, and I, th I think it just, it, it, it shakes up the game a little bit. You want to know what, uh, what really shakes up this diagram though? Yes. What? <laughs> Vital assets. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, so the deployments, I mean, so first of all, the, I guess the, objective cards are gonna i mean one's basically breakthrough the other one is payload and um really the only one that makes it weird is payload right because the other two are kind of based on things yeah. that move around a lot i think whereas payload payload is very terrain dependent yeah hostage i will say one thing about hostage hostage reinforces there's this unwritten rule i have of make sure that the middle of the board is on the same play surface as the majority of the rest of the board is. Um, hostage kind of reinforces that because you have to put them down in the middle and do a speed one move away from that. So if the middle of the board is on a tiny little building and you can't do a full speed one move off of it, that's just going to get really weird really fast and not in a good way. Um, so there's that. But yeah, uh, the only one that really specifically interacts with terrain is payload. Um, and that one, you really just want to, it probably falls in similar lines of how you design for like key positions where I forget, does payload, I need, I don't have the cards in front of me, unfortunately. Um, does payload, can those terrain pieces be in the deployment zone or is it just out within yeah. a certain range? They okay. can't be entirely within, they can be overlapping the, the deployment zones. Okay, so you're probably going to see a lot of similar pieces that might be chosen for like key positions chosen for payload in some ways i mm -hmm. haven't played it enough to know if that's true or not 
but you're going to see a lot of those maybe closer to the deployment zone um, pieces of terrain picked in order to force their opponent to go further to get to it. So you can kind of design in a similar way when you think about those, like, oh, which ones would I choose for payload? You know, maybe a big hill that is overlapping a deployment zone might be an option or a barricade or something like that that they're trying to blow up. Um, that could work for payload. Bombing run doesn't interact with terrain at all, just deployments. So make sure that you can move in and out of deployment zones for bombing run to work for the most part. Um, it's like breakthrough, right? Basically, it's breakthrough, but it's explode things at right. within, within yeah. range one or within the deployment zone, I believe. Um, so yeah, that shouldn't be a big deal. Um, same with the conditions. Um, there is one thing I will say for map makers with the conditions. Be careful putting lots of barricades on your boards now. Because people are going <laughs> to be bringing their own thanks to fortified positions. Yeah. yeah. I think that's fine. Yeah. And like also keep in mind that fortified positions is going to be a condition that exists when you're designing a board. So make sure your board isn't so saturated with scatter that it can't handle any more scatter being put on it. Um, mm -hmm. Fortified positions is going to be a really interesting way to see like players that don't necessarily want to play on more open boards can bring that as a condition and bid higher to try to maybe you know, turn what was a very open board into more of a middling board by putting out eight pieces of heavy cover. Um, yeah. That'll be interesting to see what players do with that. But yeah, with the terrain, make sure there's space for like some barricades to go out in non-obtrusive ways. Um, again, we got to see how players adapt to actually using that. I don't know, because like barricade, we got a little bit of an instance, but at, you know, eight total barricades is a lot to add to a board. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, you have any thoughts on that, Mike? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a lot. Um, I don't know. I sort of, I think more barricades the better, personally. Um, but I, I mean, I guess my my overall question there would be, you know, should you know map makers and tos intentionally scale down the amount of scatter terrain that they're putting on their boards so that fortified positions is a meaningful choice i would say personally no just because you want to have a variety in boards anyway if you had a board that was had like a lot of scatter terrain and i mean like was more than 50 percent scatter terrain then you might want to adjust it a little bit but for the most boards even like urban boards and stuff like it's they're just going to be added in there and it's not going to be like it shouldn't affect the tables that already exist too much yeah um yeah i agree because specifically you... placing i mean oh, oh sorry to cut you off Nemo. i'll get you in a no, second, that's right. but, Go ahead. um the ability to place a barricade where you want a barricade is very different than having a barricade placed for you where the map maker wants the barricade yeah yeah that's that's very much what I was going to get at. Yeah, I, I don't think the um, TOs need to really adjust much um, with respect to fortified positions. Um, it's it's really just giving the the players an opportunity to define uh, where they want the battle to happen, and uh, with some forethought, give themselves a little bit of cover um, to uh, to give themselves an edge in that area. 
Now do we want to talk about oh. the real beast in the room? The deployments? The deployments, yeah. So these are the ones that actually affect a good bit. Um, let's start, let's end with the, let's end with the spicy one. So danger close for me as a map designer looking at danger close. My first thought is, all right, this is basically advanced positions and disarray had a baby. And yeah. you're going to design around it very in a very similar way to how you would design around advanced positions. Um, if you're already considering disarray and you're already considering advanced positions and you're considering battle lines, it's going to fit in pretty well. The one thing you want to make sure is that at those direct conflict points, you know, where it's, what is it, range three from the deployment zones at those short points? Yeah. Yeah. Right. You want to make sure that there's cover there um, on your boards. And again, there's disarray should already be encouraging this in some way because you should be putting cover around your disarray zones to make sure that people aren't just getting sniped off the table on turn one. But because an entire army can kind of jump down another army's throat at the beginning on Danger Close, I'm looking at you clones with Scouting Party. <laughs> it's a, You want to make sure there's actual cover there to hide behind. Um, and specifically what's going to be good for that is stuff like scatter terrain, like barricades, stuff that gives heavy cover that you can shoot over. Um, that's going to encourage more meaningful fights in those areas. So you want to make sure that those specific pockets have enough to fight over because fights are going to happen there um, the middle i'm really excited to see what infiltrating units do in the middle of that deployment zone and i want to be able to have um you want to make sure you have los blockers in the middle to encourage those kind of infiltrating units to do fun things um, like you know have something for vader or Jin or cassian to go behind have something for pathfinders to jump in we're going to see i think infiltrate a lot more with just even cassian existing in the game um, and Aiden as well. So make sure you have an idea for, hey, is this an okay spot for a unit to drop in at the beginning on that kind of deployment? You have any thoughts on it, guys? Um, I think I would... Um, I don't think this one honestly affects um, it coming from a TO perspective. I don't think it affects terrain layouts too much because it it's really just following the principles that are already there. Like all, all these... Um, the, the shapes within this deployment zone are shapes that exist already. Um, and like you were saying, a TO should already be thinking about something like disarray and providing um, line of sight blockers across that long edge um, so that those zones don't necessarily have uh, clear shots against each other. Um, and then like I see elements of, of battle lines in here. So um, a layout that I would do that has battle lines in mind would still be relevant here. Um, as well as uh, what's that other one? Advanced positions, um, where all the the deployment is going to be happening within a range one of of the board edges all the way around. Um, yeah, so I don't think this one will, will, in in my mind at least, doesn't affect too much. Yeah, I mean, I think this this deployment sound affects actual gameplay a lot more than probably table setup. Hemmed in, however. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, my current thoughts on Hemden are don't design around Hemden. 
<laughs> it's just so radically different from all of the other ones that just if you designed a decent middle of a board before it should still be decent with hemmed in existing mm-hmm. um like it should still it should shouldn't break it just because you can deploy within like really just you can deploy like on it or close to it um a decent middle should be flexible enough to handle this if you're going to compare it to designing something compare it to battle lines because yeah. you still have players setting up on the opposite long edges of the board um it's just more concentrated in certain parts of those long edges yeah yeah i totally agree with that um just like the previous one i see sort of elements of battle lines in here um and i think an interesting thing that's worth mentioning is that your your diagram brad with the uh, that diagonal in there Mm -hmm. it's still in a way relevant in in this deployment um because red is split up on two different sides of the board um if if you look at that diagonal you could draw lines um that are going not a, not exactly through a blues deployment zone but um with just a little bit of movement outside the deployment zone there's you you've now hit those those alleyways going from uh deployment zone to almost deployment zone um so there, there's still that interaction along those alleyways um that are happening in this uh, in this configuration yeah i mean to the point that I just kind of made, if if you were designing with good principles before, it should still work for hemmed yeah. in. Um, hemmed in, however, like for example, if you've been designing where you've been squaring up to the board edges and have a very like squared up board where all your buildings are parallel to all the board edges, that could get dicey. Um, like depending on how you did that, because now with these like they just completely change where you're deploying and that kind of thing. I haven't done it in so long that I can't immediately go off the head of like how why it gets super dicey, but it feels risky because you're you're probably gonna have buildings that are entirely within deployment zones, entirely outside of others, um, and it can get a little messy. So the diagonal is I would definitely reinforce as a way to go because it doesn't minimize the effect of hemmed in, but it kind of naturally works with it in the way that Nemo was saying. Sure, and um, the last one we've got is uh, Rollout, right? That's the name of it? Yeah, so Rollout, I'm going to make one hard declaration on this deployment today. If you design a table where someone cannot place an AAT or a Saber within the Rollout portions, you did it wrong. (laughs) If someone brings this deployment they should be able to roll out with their tank, man. <laughs> In at least one spot. <laughs> and, and what you mean by that is the the scout move, right? Or it's not a scout move technically, right? Yeah, they, yeah, they have an extra range one band. So like, I think across the long edge, you, you have like range five to deploy within. And then range three across the... So it, it's almost like um, uh, long march. To an extent, yeah. for for vehicles, yeah, there's plenty of room in there. <laughs> it's like a mix yeah. between long march and like major offensive when for vehicles specifically when they're moving forward. Yeah. But yeah, for this one, just be aware of how far vehicles can deploy out on this objective when you're building a table, and just keep in mind that like you know, leave them a little bit of a spot, maybe two, to make it interesting. Um, it shouldn't be too hard to include. 
And and you're talking specifically about forward deployment. Forward deployment. Outside the standard deployment zone. Yes, absolutely. So like outside of the standard. I mean, on the curve, what does the text specifically state? Was it vehicles may deploy within range one of the deployment of their deployment zone? Yep, I think exactly what it says. So when you lay out this deployment zone on a table, think about, hey, is there two spots where an AAT can drop outside of range one of this? Or within range one of the deployment zone? Yeah, cool. Awesome. And then it's just so they get the little bit of incentive to do so. Um, when you're in regards to troopers, basically treat this like long march and kind of major offensive. If you like chopped off the dog leg of major offensive, kind of, and like scooted it out a little bit, that's kind of what this looks like. Um, so you'll get a little bit of like rotational like deployment going on where they can move their troopers more forward in one spot that's closer to the middle than on the exact long edge um or the short edge of the board excuse me but it's basically going to play like long march after the first couple turns with how fast units are going to be moving cool um anything else to add to the new sweet vital assets cards that we got going on here uh ooh, ooh! actually i have another one we didn't talk about war weary Hmm. Um, how, how does terrain layout affect war weary or the other way around so I think I actually kind of for some reason I was making a mistake but it's there's so war weary specifically because of the reduced size of the courage bubbles hmm. long range suppressive weapons get very good on this condition yeah very much get very very good you know what is the bane of long-range suppressive weapons line of sight blocking terrain exactly so you want to make sure you have what was that Uh, i was excited that i got a question right yeah you did um yeah yay thought exercises um yeah (laughs) proper placement of line of sight blocking terrain is always key but for war weary is definitely going to be key because you don't want to do it so it invalidates the long range you know style of play because you want that to be rewarded for them getting war weary and playing war weary but you want to make sure that units have a place to hide from that you know we've all probably played on a table at some point where the table was basically just a whole bunch of warhammer 40k terrain that has like broken down buildings and then like a whole bunch of like tiny stuff that no one could hide behind Um, and no offense to that game but that terrain doesn't necessarily work as well for legion and it ends up in just big long-range gunfights where you all just get static and sit there and kill each other from long range war weary exacerbates that um to a point where it's really you're just gonna have a lot of units panicking um and you want to at least give units the ability to hide on War Weary so they're not just going to get caught out and panicked the entire game with no no decision-making process on the players' parts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Sweet. Um, all right. Well, I think we covered an awful lot today. Um so uh before we wrap it up uh anything that doesn't have to do with war weary that you guys want to add to kind of the synopsis of 
today's relentless rangers um, stay safe think, yeah stay safe <laughs> and Wash while your you're staying safe yeah. <laughs> i think a, an interesting exercise that players that are interested in terrain can go through is um, just hop on tts and look at at the maps that have already been made um especially a lot of the more recent tournament maps um the ones that brad and i and some others like uh, ellis and um i think garnana might have done a couple of recent ones um, there's uh, there's some really cool layouts to um, to take a look at and see if you can identify some of the principles that we've talked about here um, and just turn on the grid. I think that's a good way to to start analyzing the tables a little bit. Um, yeah, I think that's a fun exercise that, that players could go through. Yeah, um, turn on the grid and not just on the empty table like I suggested, turn it on on <laughs> built tables um, because you'll see how that comes in. Yeah, don't make fun of me for the empty table stuff, all right? Just because I projected in my mind every time I build a table doesn't mean you get to mock me for it. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, turn it on the grid, look at the tables, see how things line up, and also feel free to screw around with the tables and see if you can't remix it and make it better. Um all those pieces are locked on TTS. If you don't know how to unlock a piece of terrain, you can PM me on Discord and I'll show you how. Um, and just like unlocks different pieces of terrain, move them around, make some edits. I know I'd love to go back and edit some of the maps I've made with stuff I've learned going on and just screw on and have fun. TTS is an easy way to mess around with terrain um, because it's not going to cost you hours and hours and a bunch of money to like build and hobby all this terrain to then mess around on a real table even though there is no real substitute for that it just is an easy way to experiment and kind of sink your teeth into the idea of building a map and messing around and using these principles that we're talking about in all these uh segments that we do sweet um and uh if you want to pm brad his uh discord handle i believe is nerfleaked Yes, it is. So it is Nerfly on the Legion Discord. Look for the big R in my profile. Um, I have Relentless Rangers after my name tagged on the Legion Discord as well, if you need to identify me through that way. Um, I'm typically like either away or online or just floating on the sidebar, so you can find me there too. Sweet. Um, and so we'll also be uh, putting the... Um, images that we have been referencing in the show description. Um, so please feel free to check out those links. Brad, Nima, thank you guys again for joining me today. Um, really appreciate it. Stay safe. And we will see everybody next time on Relentless Rangers. Thanks a lot, Mike. We'll see you guys later. Peace out, y'all. So that was Brad and Nima from Team Relentless talking a lot about terrain topics which are super important in a game that um is on a dynamic battlefield with terrain custom terrain so um you guys got any final thoughts no apparently no <laughs> crickets we need a cricket drop yeah, we, need, we need a crickets the cricket sound effect yeah yeah i'm sure we can find a crickets drop all right well um we are the notorious scoundrels i'm kyle I'm Mike. And I'm David. Stay fresh, cheese bags. Rest in peace, Rebel Z6. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Join us 
next week for another episode of The Notorious Scoundrels. This has been a Fifth Trooper production. <laughs>